Up from the darkness of the caverns, a solitary figure is lifted slowly into the sunlight. He's standing on a platform being hoisted up by a team of slaves turning a giant wheel. The brightness of the day blinds him for a moment, and the sound of the crowd is deafening. It's disorienting for sure, but he knows where he is. This is the third time this week he's been presented to the people of Rome in the center of the Colosseum. His name is Carpophorus. He isn't a gladiator. Those are men who fight with other men. Carpophorus is a bestiarius, and he's here to fight animals. Already, he's defeated a wild boar and a bear. Today is his toughest challenge yet, a full-grown lion brought here from Africa for just this purpose. Carpophorus is a slave, and he's here to win his freedom. But it won't be enough to just kill a series of dangerous animals with his spear. He has to put on a show, because the people need to be entertained. Carpophorus is one of the stars of the Flavian Games, a 100-day festival put on by the emperor to celebrate the opening of the Roman Colosseum. The arena is packed with 50,000 people for every single day of the festival. And honestly, why wouldn't it be? The entertainment is as good as it gets at the time. And admission is free. There's even free food. Mutton, chicken, venison, and wine. Lots of free wine. In between fights, prizes get tossed into the crowd. Food, cash, sometimes even the deed to a small house. So yeah, it's a lot better than catching a t-shirt. To build such a magnificent place and to put on such a spectacular show costs a lot of money, especially with free food and an open bar. So you might be wondering, who paid for all this? Well, the answer to that starts 15 years earlier in the time of Nero. Emperor Nero was a bad dude. If you read about him, it's inevitable you're going to come across a few descriptive terms like tyrannical or self-indulgent, compulsive, corrupt. I mean, this is a guy who had his mother killed. He also killed his half-brother. And he killed his wife so that he could marry another woman who later he killed. In later years, he married a young boy who apparently looked like one of his wives, dressed him as a woman, and had him castrated. Not a nice guy. I mean, we could do a whole show on Nero without even getting to the part where he fiddles while Rome burns. And speaking of that burning of Rome, some people claim that Nero started the fire that destroyed much of the city. And while we can't prove that, we do know that immediately afterwards he took full advantage of the devastation. He claimed an enormous part of the city as his own and built the Golden Palace. This mansion had beautifully landscaped grounds full of ponds and rivers and gardens. And when he found that the area cleared by the fire just wasn't quite big enough for his plans, he just turfed thousands more people out of their homes, knocked those buildings down, and used that land too. His palace even had a 30-foot-high statue of himself. So yeah, he was that kind of guy. Eventually, there was a coup. And when it finally seemed that Nero would get what he deserved, Nero escaped justice by killing himself. 
That kicked off a full-fledged civil war. Over the next year, Rome had three different emperors, and none of them was able to restore peace to the empire. Then the fourth came along, a man named Vespasian. Now, Vespasian knew what it took to unite an empire, a common enemy. So, he led an assault on Jerusalem, and his victory there gave the Roman people a huge boost in patriotism and a big pile of treasure. Normally, each of the generals that had helped capture a city would have received a large cash reward, but Vespasian had a different plan. He used the general's share of the captured wealth and tens of thousands of Jewish slaves to build something for the people of Rome. He wanted to maintain and build on this post-Nero sense of civic pride. He wanted to give the Romans a place to gather and a place to cheer. So he used the proceeds from the sacking of Jerusalem to fund the construction of the Roman Colosseum. I mean, if they built it using local tax revenues and hired common Roman citizens to do the labor, the building would probably still look very big and impressive. But because it was paid for with the proceeds of a military victory over a foreign power, it was more than a building. It was like a permanent, powerful symbol of how mighty the Roman Empire was. It was like a statue, but a very large statue you could go inside to get drunk and watch a guy with a knife go toe-to-toe with a lion. I'm Dan Riskin, and this is Inside the Breakthrough, How Science Comes to Life, an original podcast by Simon. I struggled a lot with what to call this episode. I tried, who foots the bill? But I didn't like that. The cost of influence. Nope, that's no good. Money talks. No, that's not it either. Everything I came up with kind of sounded dour. Everybody knows if you pay for something, you'll have some direct or indirect impact on what that thing is. Nero paid for the statue, so he got to pick what it was a statue of. Or we as consumers can all start buying more fuel-efficient cars, and we're hoping the industry will react by building more fuel-efficient cars. It's the same basic idea, but we're not always comfortable with the implications. Like, if the person who owns a newspaper starts meddling in the editorial direction of the reporting, we get pretty mad about that. But if they own the paper, isn't that kind of their right? And if we as consumers keep buying trashy tabloids, then those papers flourish while the other ones wither and die. Aren't we also using our economic power to wield editorial influence? What about that? But. Honestly, I don't want to talk about journalism. This show is about science. So let's tweak the question slightly to make it way more interesting. Does the source of funding for a research project impact what gets studied? I mean, it must, right? But how? And is that a bad thing? This is episode eight, Follow the Money. Yeah, that's the title. Much better than the other ones. It's early on a Saturday morning, and a 12-year-old boy named Werner is sneaking out the back door. He goes to the shed and pulls out the wagon. He loads it with supplies and heads down the road. He's meeting some friends in the schoolyard. When they arrive, it's deserted. Just three kids, a wagon, and a big pile of fireworks. They attach the fireworks to the wagon, three on each side, and light them. The wagon goes racing across the yard, straight at first, but then it starts wobbling, and then it flips. 
It's an incredible success, at least in the eyes of Werner and his friends. They retrieve the wagon and make plans for a second run. They want to adjust the position and the angle of the fireworks so they can get that wagon to go straight for longer. But before they get to that second run, the police show up. The kids go down to the station and they get a talking to. But Werner's father's kind of a big deal. He's actually the Minister of Agriculture. So the boys are let off with a warning. Werner goes on to university to study physics. Now, as much fun as those gunpowder-filled fireworks were, he starts to study liquid-fueled rockets. That's a pretty new idea at the time. At the age of 22, he gets a PhD for a paper titled Design, Theoretical, and Experimental Contributions to the Problem of the Liquid-Fuel Rocket. Now, as I'm sure you can imagine, developing a new kind of rocket is an expensive undertaking. And as a new graduate, he doesn't have that kind of money sitting around. So he takes a job with the only people willing to fund that kind of research, the government. Only problem is, it's 1934, and he lives in Germany. So that government he's working for is the Nazis. Werner von Braun was hired by the German Army Ordnance Corps. They sponsored his research and let him conduct all his experiments in the Army's proving ground. That was a lot safer than a yard behind a school. His rocket design was unique for two reasons. One, he used alcohol instead of gasoline. And two, this is the interesting part, he built two turbo pumps that pushed alcohol and liquid oxygen into the combustion chamber at high pressure. This created never-before-seen levels of thrust. The possible applications of this amount of force were... Well, let's just say the sky was the limit. But then the Second World War started, and there was only one application of rockets that his bosses were interested in. He led the design, testing, and development of the V-2 rocket. We know now, and Von Braun knew then, that the actual construction of the rockets was done by condemned prisoners in concentration camps, essentially slave labor. Those prisoners built 5,000 of them. Now, I have read some military historians who say the missile program really wasn't that successful because it didn't substantively help the German war effort, and that might be true, but that's not the point. Those rockets killed 3,000 people, almost all of them civilians. And all of those deaths are on the hands of Werner von Braun. I'm telling you that because a lot of people have tried to whitewash von Braun's history and claim he was just a scientist doing his job. He was apolitical. But using slave labor to build rockets that are fired at civilians, I don't know if apolitical is the best way to frame that. But his scientific achievements are remarkable, and for many people, that warrants him a revered place in history. After all, in Germany in the late 30s, there was really only one way to get rocket science done, and that was with Nazi money. To many, he's a hero, in spite of the context. And those supporters will tell you this story. In March of 1944, he was at a party. There was music, there were ladies, and there were drinks. Late in the evening, after a few too many, Von Braun, thinking he was amongst friends, started speaking freely. He said he thought the war would end badly for Germany, and he insisted that all he ever wanted to do with his rockets was launch them into space. 
Well, the next day, he was arrested for treason. He was interrogated by the Gestapo. Ultimately, he was released and allowed to continue his work, but from then on, he had a political officer assigned to watch him and his team. Von Braun was right. The war did end badly for Germany. About a year after that party, the Allies were closing in on Berlin. Von Braun was ordered to destroy all of his research papers so they wouldn't fall into the hands of the enemy. But he didn't. He hid them in an abandoned mine shaft in the mountains. He surrendered to the Americans and then used his hidden research material as leverage. He negotiated safe passage to America and a promise not to be tried as a war criminal for himself and 120 of his colleagues. Getting all those scientists out wasn't easy. The Russians were after them too. So the Americans launched a secret mission. Now, military operations usually have cool names like Desert Storm or Operation Overlord, but the efforts to extradite Von Braun and his assistants, that was named Project Paperclip. <laughs> I kind of like it. It's a mission to save nerds. Paperclip's a great title, and hey, it worked. Von Braun settled in the U.S. He got married, he became a U.S. citizen, and by the 1950s, Werner was named the technical director of the Army Ballistic Missile Agency. His job was to develop long-range missiles, rockets that could send a warhead halfway around the world. Think about that. Just a few short years after the war, a former Nazi is in a leadership role with the U.S. Army. It seems crazy. And it's not just me. A lot of people at the time were very uncomfortable with Von Braun's role. A great comedian of the time, Tom Lehrer, even wrote this song about him. Don't say that he's hypocritical. Say rather that he's apolitical. Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? <laughs> That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. Throughout the 50s, while under the supervision of the U.S. military, von Braun continued to create larger and more powerful rockets. These could be used to carry heavier and more destructive warheads. You know that line, meet the new boss, same as the old boss? Well, the greatest mind in rocketry had a new employer, but he was still making weapons. In 1958, President Dwight Eisenhower addressed the American people. My fellow citizens, my subject tonight is science and national security. He spoke of needing the entire country to get behind a new initiative. I shall propose a program of action, a program that will demand the energetic support of not just the government, but every American, if we are to make it successful. What he announced was the formation of NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. It was to be a civilian operation, taken completely out of the hands of the military. In fact, its founding act expressly states that activities in space should be devoted to peaceful purposes. Well, the Army did not like that. They argued that since they'd been the ones to get von Braun and his team out of Germany a decade earlier, they should remain in charge of his research. They did manage to hold on to him for two years, but ultimately, in 1960, von Braun transferred to NASA. And it was there, in his new role, that he created the Saturn V. 
It was the most powerful rocket ever built. It still holds that title today. And it's the vehicle that powered the Apollo program. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. It was the first time since that wagon with the fireworks that Werner got to work on a rocket that wasn't a weapon. Zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. When von Braun was getting paid by the Nazis, he built the V-2, which killed thousands of people. When he was getting paid by the U.S. military, he built long-range missiles that became ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, the weapons that brought the world to the brink of nuclear Armageddon. But when he was on the payroll of the civilian space agency NASA, his work led to this. Same scientist, different employers. So yeah, who's paying the bills makes a big difference for what happens with the science. Coliseums and rockets are fun, but I want to bring this to the here and now. Symar is a medical research company, but the name tells you something more. You see, Symar stands for Bringing Breakthrough Science to Market. They've always been keenly aware that just sitting in a lab and studying hormones in a Petri dish isn't going to save millions of people from type 2 diabetes. They need money to continue their research, to run clinical trials, and ultimately to get their solution to the people who need it. But from whom? How can a research company like Symar make sure the source of their funding aligns with their values? Do they turn to investors on Wall Street? Or do they look to Main Street? people like you and me. Historically, science was paid for by private patronage, you know, a rich person who wants to support your work. Galileo's work in the 16th and 17th centuries, for example, was paid for by wealthy individuals, including, interestingly enough, the Pope. The other option is government funding, like when Charles Darwin went sailing on HMS Beagle and developed his theories on evolution. That trip was funded by the British government. And those are still the two main sources private investment, or government grants. The government option involves multiple agencies, each with their own criteria, each aimed at supporting a different step along the pipeline from research to innovation. But getting that government money is complicated. In fact, you will hear a lot of researchers complain that they spend way more time chasing funding than they spend doing actual science. That is a common theme that comes up in the research community. That's Rachel Maxwell, the executive director of Evidence for Democracy, a nonprofit organization focused on improving how government and the research community interact. The writing of a grant is very resource intensive. And and not only that, if you are the recipient of very large grants, you are likely going to be saddled with a fairly hefty reporting burden. But I think it's important that we think about why that is. And the federal granting councils, they are dispersing public funds. And we live in a time where we we need to be accountable to how public funds are being used. There's also a constant question about what should get funded, pure research or ready-for-market solutions. 
we need to prioritize both. We need to prioritize basic fundamental research, and we also need to be able to prioritize the commercial side of things. Really, it is the job of our government to make sure that that entire pipeline from basic research to innovation is supported and fed. Rochelle Brutton is on the front lines of that fight. She's the director of the National Programs Office at the NRC. That's Canada's National Research Council. So basically, I'm responsible for the oversight of the NRC's collaborative research and development programs. So where we bring the brightest minds together, we provide expertise, access to the facilities NRC, as well as funding so that we can deliver real results. The NRC directly funds some research, but their bigger role is bringing together other funding agencies. We have partnerships with these other federal entities where we will do a single call. So there's kind of a one window you can apply for funding through. They provide a one-stop shop for researchers looking for funding so they don't have to, as Rachel mentioned earlier, spend half their time writing grant applications and filling out progress reports. Canada has some portals where you can say, this is who I am, this is what I want to work on, this is the stage of my research or my project, and you can put all this information and then it gives you back a bunch of options in terms of what is available for funding right now, what can you apply for. But being in the middle of this process means the NRC has a huge amount of influence over what research gets supported. I mean, do they prioritize climate change or space exploration? Do they direct funding to cancer research or Alzheimer's? Our motives are very much aligned with impacts on Canadians and filling a gap where potentially industry is either unable to for their own motives. You have to remember they have to have revenues, they have to be able to survive. That last bit is crucial. Private industries have different motives. And yes, I am talking about big pharma here. They're willing to throw huge sums of money at research, but primarily they're looking for discoveries that are close to entering the market and carry the potential for profit. That can leave pure research underfunded. And so where government comes in is to be able to take that research where it's high risk, but high impact and be able to help de-risk it to the point where industry can pick it up and take off with it. We also have programming that is specifically for new beginnings, we call it, or breakthroughs. It's around ideation. And so where you have an idea, you see a potential, you see a problem, and you think, I might have a way to do this, but I just need to try it. And I need just a bit of funding to do that. And we have small grants that allow for us to do exploratory research in a specific area. If you think of it as managing a hedge fund, Private investors are looking for blue-chip stocks, but the government agencies are willing to roll the dice on a few startups. Some of these breakthroughs can be transformative. And if you focus on some of those while balancing the risk profile of your investments, there's potential to invent or discover something new that could unlock the key to a lot of problems. The COVID pandemic proved that when public, political, and financial incentives align, we can accomplish amazing things with breathtaking speed. So that leads to the question, could we take the same playbook that got us multiple COVID vaccines in just 18 months and then use that approach to tackle cancer or AIDS or type 2 diabetes? So I put that question to Rachel Maxwell of Evidence for Democracy. What we need to be careful, though, of here is saying things like, well, if we solved COVID-19, if we got vaccines for it in a year's time, why can't we solve X, Y, and Z diseases? 
But there are a few things to, to cautiously unpack. Specifically, the speed or the pace of the research and the funding, you know, money. First, the pace at which we're able to move. I understand that it looked really rapid and it was in a sense, but these are fields of science that have been developing and doing research for decades. And they have had millions upon millions upon billions of dollars poured into them. mRNA research, for example, and its potential to be used as drugs and therapeutics or as a vaccine is, dates back into the 80s. And wow, did these investments pay off when we needed them, which is really exciting. In other words, the quick creation of a solution wouldn't have been possible without the decades of pure research that happened before we knew anything about COVID. And that brings us to the money. I think what is interesting around mobilizing research support is that there's been a new model that has emerged, which is a mission-driven research approach. And so here the focus is on outcomes or the mission, so to say. And in the pandemic, the mission was to defeat the virus. And then what you saw was a global response to do that. And we converged resources onto that mission. That's what I want to focus on, mobilizing research and converging resources onto issues in the future. And how can we bring that model of converging resources and being focused on outcomes to other challenges, diseases, and threats? So all we have to do is support decades of pure research and then be ready to apply everything we've learned to a new mission when it comes up. That doesn't sound that hard. So what would that look like for, say, diabetes? Well, Dr. Wayne Lott and the team at Symar have been doing pure research in the lab since the 1980s. That's gotten us to the point where they've identified the hormone hepatolin and measured what it does to control glucose levels. Okay, so that's step one. What they need now is that second part, the mission, a sense of urgency and a sense of cooperation between government and private industry to put resources behind this effort to combat the epidemic of type 2 diabetes the same way we tackled COVID. Or to bring it back to the Roman Colosseum or the development of the Saturn V rocket, what they need is a source of funding that fits with what they're really trying to do. End type 2 diabetes this decade. So that's it. I'm Dan Riskin. Thanks for joining me on Inside the Breakthrough, How Science Comes to Life. Oh, one last thing. There's this thing called the Karman Line. It's named after Hungarian physicist Theodor von Karman. It's the line that marks the beginning of space. You see, there isn't a real boundary between our atmosphere and space because the air just gradually gets thinner and thinner over 600 miles. So how do you know when you've gone to space? Well, von Karman defined it as the place where aerodynamics stops and astronautics begins. Most people don't know this, but I think it's really important. If you're flying in a plane, it's the air pressure on the wings that keeps you up in the air. That's aerodynamics. But for a satellite in space, there's no lift. It's just kept aloft by momentum. It's constantly falling, but it's going so fast that it passes the Earth as it falls and just keeps doing that continually in an orbit. That's not aerodynamics. That's astronautics. Von Karman determined that at 62 miles above the Earth, based on how dense the air is when you get that high up, a craft would be carried 50-50 between lift 
and inertia. So, 62 miles, or roughly 100 kilometers, is now considered the boundary between our atmosphere and outer space. And the first human-made object to rise above that line, the first time we as a species built something that could leave the planet, it was a V-2 rocket, designed and launched in 1944 by Werner von Braun. See? The sky really was the limit.